Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yeah, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. What Don Morgan said is true. Rich Kimball here, along with Kerry Haskell. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Welcome into episode number 207. Two fine conversations coming up for you. In the second half, we talk with a guy who will be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame at Cooperstown this summer. And Well, why not? 25 years in the major leagues, some 283 wins, and then an even longer career as a major league broadcaster. He served as a pitching coach briefly as well, knows the game inside and out, and he chronicles his story uh, in a new book. We'll talk with Jim Cott about good as gold in the second half of downtown this week. But up first... I'll say it. I'll say it out loud. Kerry Haskell, he's our favorite guy to talk to. Two-time winner of her Downtown Madness Award, so it's not like we don't agree with uh, other people as well, but he's just always so great. Stephen Tobolowsky, who has been coming on with us for years, never brings less than his A game, and and you never know where you're going to go when Stephen shows up. Always a delight to have him hook up with us and uh, join us for some stories. Yeah, a little humor, a little philosophy. Uh, We talk about uh, some some projects he's got in the works, uh, what his future is on the Goldbergs, the ABC series that just got renewed for a 10th season. And we also talked about those chores that cause him the most annoyance around the house. You might be surprised. (laughs) Let's give a listen to Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. Well, how have you been? Everything's fine. Uh, we, we had the Romeo and Juliet rehearsal yesterday, our first one. And it's really amazing. It's that, really amazing. That it's looks a great... like such a wonderful show. Can can you explain what the the, the, the story of, uh, let me see if I get it right here, Romeo and Juliet Senior Citizens Project. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, uh, the, the director, the fictitious director, just got his MFA from Yale Drama School, and he works for Uber Eats. But his first uh, <laughs> job he got is to work at the senior c- citizens uh, home. So he wants to do a production of Romeo and Juliet with the senior citizens who, who are at the home. And so I play Romeo and I'm a real estate guy who's had three marriages in my life. I served in Vietnam when I was a young man and I'm playing Romeo. I have, you know, a girlfriend at the home, Loretta, who who was on One Life to Live you know, in her day, her prime, you know, she played a, she was an actress on one like to live. She, she, she would played a person with 20 personalities, you know, and <laughs> seeing who she is in real life is she seems to come across that way. And then, uh, she expects she's going to play Juliet, but <laughs> no, who gets the role of Juliet is this, uh, little Asian woman who came in and it's like, Little did anyone know it was the first love of my life. And I fell in love with her in high school. And and uh, her parents didn't like me and my parents didn't like her probably because she's Asian and I wasn't. Then I get sent to Vietnam and I write her and tell her that I love her and miss her. And then I write her and say, will you marry me? And I never get a response back. So I figure 
it's done. And she never got my letter, just like in the play Romeo and Juliet. Wow. The message was not delivered. Mm. And so she ends up marrying. She has a life. I have a life. And now she walks into this senior citizens facility. Her husband has just passed away. And I see her and it all comes back and it all ignites, but it all comes through the play. It, it's amazing. And then we do the play Romeo and Juliet. That sounds I wonderful. I mean, not the whole play. All right. I, I still remember uh, I, I played Montague a few years ago. Let's see. Oh. Uh, many a morning have you there been seen with tears augmenting the fresh morning's dew, adding to <laughs> yeah. clouds, more clouds with his deep sorrow. I, I can do that part, and that's it. It's the only thing I yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, well, well, you know, in a few years, you'll be able to, to do that. We'll, we'll bring you in. Now, how are your relations with the director of this show? Yeah, they're they're strained right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's tough, you know, because when Ann has to give me notes, you know, she she has to tiptoe, you know. She has to, t you know, she doesn't want to offend me. <laughs> and, and, you know, but she's like, dee, dee, dee. you know, we have a little note, we have a little, huh, huh, huh. You, you know, so, uh, but, uh, we, we got through this We're we're doing a reading in public on Saturday. And then we're supposed to start a workshop, but Jamie Brandley, who is all, who won the Humanitas award for playwriting in Los Angeles before the pandemic a couple of years ago. I mean, she's a wonderful writer. And Beth has done a few of her plays, directed a few of her plays. She's already getting requests through her agent for this play, Sight Unseen. Wow. Because, I mean, if you take a look at it, it's perfect for high schools can do it, colleges can do it, regional theater can do it, and you could do it on Broadway. It just depends on how you want to cast it. You, you get, you know, Sam Waterston in there playing Romeo and, you know, Jane Fonda playing uh, Loretta. And, 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 you know, she plays Tybalt, too, you know, and then mm. you, you uh, get someone else playing Juliet. You know, you would have a, a hit show. So and it's wonderful. And, and it, it's also for the people, you know, it's such a great play. Romeo and Juliet is so beautiful. And you have just the current, the current stream of dialogue going, and then we're on stage, and but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. I mean, my God, <laughs> my God! And Shakespeare never lived to be a senior. He passed away, I think, when he was like fifty-six, mm. and he left a legacy that is untouchable in the world, kind of like Isaac Newton, you know, kind of those untouchable legacies. Uh, amazing, amazing. Well, and, and what's it like to be back on stage? I, I remember in in the book, uh, you talked about the rehearsal space as one of the holy places. One of the holy places. It It is. And, you know, last yesterday, our holy space was our porch, our back porch with the helicopter, police helicopters going overhead and the wind. And I realized it isn't a conscious decision to make it a holy space, but through practice and years of doing it, the rehearsal space is a holy space where you have to find out what's true. That's what you have to do. It isn't finding out what's clever and it isn't finding out where you're going to get a laugh. 
because you'll figure that out when you get an audience. But you have to find out what the truth of the scene is in that rehearsal space. And that's why it's holy. So it doesn't matter what kind of noise is there. That is your one mission. We're talking with Stephen Tobolowsky here on Downtown. Uh, I sent you a message. I absolutely love your work uh, in the HBO series, Minx. What a what a wonderful show that is. Our friend Rich Summer uh, in it as well. Man, is that great. Yeah, it was I, I happened to be in the first episode, and the we didn't know at the time, like doing Groundhog Day, you don't know at the time you're going to be in a hit show. You don't know. It's just all the same. So the thing I remember about Minx was that we we were doing it at this very retro country club outside Los Angeles, outside Altadena, like up in the mountains, and everything was on an angle. Uh, this country club was on the side of a mountain. And so my trailer was on an angle to where when I'd lay on the bed in the trailer, I would roll off onto the floor and onto the <laughs> other side of the trailer. When when you go to the bathroom in the trailer, you know, if you're standing up at the toilet, you have to know trigonometry <laughs> and geometry. To I mean, it's like, Whoa, my goodness. You know, it, it's so dangerous. And then I was wearing retro clothes. I was wearing these 1980s clothes, uh, which means uh, for the people out there who know sewing, it means you don't sew this stuff because if you do, it's going to fall apart. So I had to wear a male girdle. And I believe they call these a, a Manx a manx so it, it went on my chest it went over my chest over my stomach to where to where i could wear the sports jacket the it, it, the manx and as the customer is putting it on me you know she said well go in private and put on the manx and i think you're going to find you love it and what we're going to do is we'll we'll put the jacket and the shirt on you and the tie and if you want a Manx for your personal use, I can get you one at price. And I go, forget it. I don't need the Manx. I'm married already. <laughs> I don't have to impress anyone anymore. You, you know, we've been married now. Gosh, Annie and I have been married, we figured, 34 years. Wow. 34 years. And, and, Gosh, what? How, how is it different being? You know, you still you still walk around on tiptoes. You still don't want to insult someone after thirty four years. And we we did do this one thing in the household that was a revelation for me last week. Is Anne said because especially too with COVID, if I don't do something, she has to do it, and vice <laughs> versa. You know, we we don't have help. We don't go anywhere. We have to do the chores. And she says, is there anything I can do around the house that you have to do? What is it that you hate to do around the house? So this got me thinking <laughs> of the things I hate to do around the house. And I do so many things around the house that are hateable. And I have to figure out what thing is it that I really hate more than anything mm. else. I have to clean the rabbit cage which, every day, which is not nice. It's not a good thing to do because uh, rabbit makes big mess. Clean the turtle bowl. Cleaning the turtle bowl is worse than cleaning the rabbit cage. Why? That's, well, uh, the turtle 
eats worms, first of all. So if if he doesn't eat all the worms, the leftover worms are in there, and sometimes those worms are still moving around. Oh, <laughs> dear. And, and, you have, and then the turtle, about once every three days, will have what you would call a turtle poop. And I don't know the physiology of this, but the turtle poop is almost as big as the turtle. You know, I don't know when and how it happens, but it's particularly nasty, and you have to clean this whole thing out. And what I do is I fill it in buckets of water and dump it in my neighbor's yard. And I feel like it's <laughs> it's probably good fertilizer for them. But so I finally figured out what task I do that I hate more mm. than any other that I would foist upon my wife of 34 years. And I waited for a particularly romantic moment. You know, we had just finished watching the fourth episode of The Office in a row, and it was time to, like, turn off the TV. You know, everyone's streaming The Office, and I understand why. So turn off the TV, and in bed I go, baby, I figured out what I hate the most to do around the house. And I said, I will give you a treat if you can guess what it is. And she could not. And she guessed the obvious. She guessed the turtle. She guessed the rabbit. No. She guessed me cleaning up the cat litter, Every, you know, all that. No, 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 no. The number one thing I hate to do around the house is stir the peanut butter. Oh. When did I become the guy who has to open the new jar of Laura Scudder's nutty peanut butter and stir it. And let me tell you, I remember an age where you didn't have to stir peanut butter. <laughs> you just open it up and you put it on the bread. Yeah. But now, now we went through this hippy-dippy period where suddenly like with an inch of oil on top oh, of the yes. peanut butter is going to be better. And so I wake up and I let's say I want a little peanut butter on Ann's homemade bread, which is fabulous, the bread. <laughs> and I have to spend my pre-coffee moments of the day stirring that peanut butter without sloshing the oil anywhere. So I said to Ann, if you could stir the peanut butter for me. <laughs> and she goes, Stephen, I, I really think you're so much better at stirring the peanut butter than I am. I really think you do. It's one thing I've noticed you do it so well. And I understand that is the method women my entire life have used is the flattery method. Mm. But so far it's worked. I, I don't have a great solution, but what I do for uh, for the for stirring the peanut butter is use a single beater on the electric mixer. So I just, because if you try to use you two... You put it in with your hand or with... No, no, the electric mixer and just lower it in. If you try to use two, it won't fit into the jar, but if you right, use just one not. beater, it will go in the jar and you can use it in it. You, you it do want to like splatter all over the, it doesn't splatter all over the kitchen. No, no, you just real slow and, and, okay. and yeah, give it, give it a shot. I, Cause yeah, I hate stirring peanut butter too, but. Okay. Well, we'll, okay. The next one, I did get a particularly large jar this time, so I didn't have to do it that often. And I found that the large jar was easier to stir than the smaller jars. So I will use the mm. one beater method next time. And if it doesn't work, it's on your head, man. <laughs> and you are going to be responsible for cleaning my kitchen. You started out at one. Don't, don't go in with a five setting. You're in trouble. Now, what was Anne's least favorite job around the house? Oh, God. 
Um, I, I think, and it, it, it isn't that it's her least favorite because she loves it, but it's the most taxing. One of the things she's gotten into during the pandemic is making sourdough bread. And the thing about sourdough, it is not just a skill, but it is a life thing that you do. It, it requires time. It requires you being there when the bread is ready to go. So like something like two or three times a week, she has to feed the sourdough. She has to feed it. And then uh, she has to coax it. Then she has to make loaves like about twice a week to use that sourdough and, and feed the other yeast going. And, and so it's this very time-consuming thing. And you have to heat the oven up to 500 degrees. And she got this oven thing, this container, this cast iron skillet from Germany that has a top on it. And you put it in the, in the oven at 500 degrees for a long time. And then you pull it out and she wears these super asbestos mitts to put the sourdough in there and you do it for 20 minutes, 20 minutes by the clock. Then you pull it out and then you take it out of that cast iron thing and put it back in the oven for another 20 minutes and then it's done. And then it's Oof. done. And it has to be perfect and it has to happen. Every that's just so time consuming for her. So that's what what she loses sleep over. That, that, that's like science. I, that's too much That's work. like a third world problem when you're losing sleep over <laughs> making your bread. It's is uh, is being a granddad still uh, the most wonderful thing in the world? Yeah, it's it's being a granddad is pretty great. Uh, Dior has gotten to be a real master of the smackdown, and now people Dior is about to become two. She will become two at the end of June, and so she is no longer a bald baby. She now has hair on her head, you know, and and. Just beautiful hair growing on her head. So two days ago, she comes up to me and starts pulling on the hair on her head, like, and fluffing it and, and doing this. Then she looks at me and points at my bald head and shrugs like, too bad. <laughs> too bad. You know, I don't know what happened to you, but I'm fine. Look what so, I can do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so she's a master of the SmackDown. She she loves the garden. She loves feeding the squirrels. It, it's just, and, and I was trying to think yesterday, what is it? Because I hear this all over the place now. And we may have talked about it before, you know, about the joys of grandparentum versus like when we were kids, cars. You know, when we were kids, <laughs> right. I remember with Mark Dombrowski in library class, just looking at magazines, road and track. Oh, I want a 405. Well, what's four? Oh, that's 405. So that's big engine. Well, I want a 445. You know, we, you know, we're all talking about engines. I want this car. I want this car. And I've been driving my whole life and I hate it. <laughs> Nobody in school said being a grandparent is the greatest thing in your life. If you can hang around for that. And so I was trying to think of yesterday uh, during rehearsal when I was waiting for my lines to come up and for truth to enter into the arena of the holy arena. I'm thinking like, what is it about Dior and about being a grandparent that's so transcendent? And I thought, you know, in a very selfish way, 
it is an affirmation of life. It's an affirmation that what you did was something right, that you fell in love, you got married, and you two together decided to have a child, that life was good enough to continue the cycle. And then that child felt that his life or her life was good enough for them to carry the cycle on and have a child. And somehow it affirms all of the mistakes, <laughs> everything you've done in your life, where you're driving off the road here, there, and everywhere, you know, somehow, some way, what I did was right because life is saying, yes, Stephen, you get this joy at the end of your life, at the tail end of, of your story. You get this special joy of seeing that it was all worthwhile. And and that is, and especially, you know, with someone like Dior that's so full of humor and so full of, she loves music and she loves, she loves everything I love. How did that happen? I guess because those were the things I showed her. Yeah. You know, and so it becomes an affirmation of the things I knew growing up. It, it, it's it's the most splendid thing I could possibly imagine. I don't. I may not get to experience that because I came to fatherhood so late in life, having a being sixty three, almost sixty four, with an <laughs> eight year old now. Congratulations! But, but I get some of that, and you know, we were talking about something the other day, and and I and I said to him, I mentioned something about when I'm old. And and he looked at me and said, "You're you're old now, <laughs> <laughs> king of the smackdown." Yes. And then oh. he had then just this little sly grin came to his face, and I and I realized, oh, oh this is only the beginning. I've I've got to put up with this for the rest of my natural life. I have always felt, why is it that humor is so intoxicating? I think because it is a form of courage. I think we're not cavemen anymore. We don't want to go out and kill the saber-toothed <laughs> tigers, but we can go up to somebody and go, kill a saber-toothed today? <laughs> no, I got something better to do, man. I'm going to sit back here and sip on my pina colada. You know, and, and the idea of telling a joke or making someone laugh or smile or smacking them down is just a form of courage. Sometimes not a good form of courage, but a form <laughs> of courage. Now, you've done so much in your career, Stephen. Have you ever done stand-up? Oh, God, no. No, I, I, you know, the thing is, I'm too story-oriented. I, I could, I, I find the people who do stand-ups, if you take a look at really good ones like Jerry Seinfeld or Stephen Wright, uh, you know, really uh, Gary Shandling, really great, great, great stand-ups, a lot of times their routines are made up of what I would call a lot of act ones. You know, they would begin a story and they do this story thing, but the story really doesn't grow or develop or go into anything. And I've always been kind of enamored of the surprising story that starts at one place and goes to another. And it's hard to just fill all that up with jokes. It, it, I, I try sometimes, like in the podcast, I try to have, some of them are funny, where, where they are naturally funny. But I do like, you, you know, uh, again, this isn't stand-up, but I'd like the idea of when I got off of the airplane and there was the information man at the airport wearing his T-shirt and his hat, a senior citizen, T-shirt, hat, and the had the candy canes on the table. And I said, so I decided I had time in between flights, you know. So um, 
I'm just curious, uh, where does my Delta flight leave? And he goes, um, I have no information. <laughs> I said, what, what? You're information man. He said, well, I'm information man, but they don't let me have information anymore. I said, why don't they let you have information anymore? He said, well, because at the airport, the information changes so rapidly. I was giving the people the wrong information too much. So they said, it's best you just hand out candy canes and you don't give out any information. But what information do you need? And I said, well, I'm scared. <laughs> I'm scared to ask you now with that, you know, the fact that you give out wrong information. But I'm looking for this Delta flat flight and I just don't know where that gate is. And he says, I'm going to try to find you some information. <laughs> and he went and he went into the pilot's lounge and he brought a pilot out by, you know, by the, you know, a Delta pilot. And, and I, and he goes, ask, ask him your question. So I said, where does my flight? He, he says, well, it's a good thing that uh, the information man came and got me because we've had a lot of trouble with that gate and we don't <laughs> do that gate at the Delta thing anymore. Now we do that at United. And so you're actually in the wrong terminal. You're going to have to go outside. You're going to have to walk down to two, two more terminals, go back in the building and go back out to this gate. That's where your flight's going to leave from. And I looked at the information man and I said, do you know, I never would have found my flight if you didn't get me that information. You are not only the information man. As far as I'm concerned, you're the best information man I've ever met at an airport. <laughs> and I enjoy stories like that that have beginning, middle, and ends, and they're just nuts on the surface of them. They're crazy. You know, but you would never do that as a stand-up. Because, because stand-ups, you've got to have a joke like every five seconds or something. You know, like you watch Jerry Seinfeld. He's just hilarious. Right. Will there be any more Tobolowsky files in our future? Yeah, I've, I've written some, actually. And because of the intensity of Dior time, uh, I talked <laughs> to David Chen. And uh, probably <laughs> I will start recording them again probably within the next month or two. Oh, really? I'll start recording them again and then getting them to David. He'll add his parts and edit them, and then we'll start putting them on. So hopefully they will be on before the end of the year. That's wonderful. We'll, we'll have some as a Christmas present. Oh, that's great. Now, I see the uh, the Goldbergs got renewed for a 10th season, but, but Adam has graduated. What does that mean for Principal Ball? Yeah, well, you know, you I would be worried... But the the final I gotta say, the people at the Goldbergs are kind of magnificent in the way they keep the ball in the air. It's not enough to have someone great like Wendy McClendon Covey, you know, leading the show and all the the wonderful cast in the show. It's and the funny writing of the show. But you have to deal with crises. You have to deal with the fact of things going off the track, like you know George Siegel passing away, like Jeff Garland leaving the show. You have to deal with these major hiccups. Kids are going to graduate from school, but they have come up with some very compelling cliffhangers at the end of this season to where Wendy is going to have a more permanent position at the school. Good. Hello. That means she's going to be working with me and she's going to be working with Tim Meadows. So the three of us hopefully are going to be working. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe oh, I'll be well fired and... Your, your yeah. scenes with Wendy are just gold. 
oh, we just, we, Wendy and I just love working together. We love doing, and also there is, uh, the eldest daughter, uh, Haley, Haley, Haley Goldberg, uh, is, is coming back and she ends up, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler. She's going to end up getting a job at the school too. Wonderful. And there are a few other absolutely, uh, lovely plot developments that are going to make it a very rich season as well. But that is, it's amazing. Boy, it, it is like you spend your whole lifetime dodging the bullets. And in the beginning of your life, you have a lot of respect for the bullets, but later in your life, man, you have a lot of respect for the dodging. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you have been in so many wonderful series in recent years, and you know, if you, depending on your perspective, you could say, "Well, gosh, you know, Stephen is—he is so lucky to keep getting these great parts." But at some yeah. point, I think you got to look at it from the other direction and say, "I think it's because people who make good television shows and films want Stephen involved because he's going to add even more to it and make them better." Well, that's the theory. I, I think another thing that happens is <clears throat> there's a practical idea, too. I was uh, for at, at Sony Pictures. The head of Sony approved me as a network approval when I did, I think, Silicon Valley. I'm thinking that may have been Silicon Valley may have been the first where, where they go like we give Stephen Tobolowsky approval as a network for Sony to be on a show. And then the Goldbergs, you know, the, or maybe it was the Goldbergs was for one of the two was the first. And then they said, well, he already has network approval. So we'll, we'll have Steven here do this. And then from the Goldbergs come schooled, which is the same group. Well, we have Steven. So we'll just move him over to that series. And then with one day at a time, I auditioned. Oh yes, I auditioned wow. for Norman Lear, which was a wonderful experience. To meet him was such a wonderful experience, and it was one of those times where I wasn't nervous at all to go in on an audition. I just felt so privileged to meet Norman, so happy and and to share with him. I mean, he didn't know the background story that the first job I got in Los Angeles was his casting director, Jane Murray. Uh, I, I wrote, we, you, they have backstage and they have all these little magazines back then where, where they had aud notice for auditions for newbies out there. And Jane Murray was casting director of, uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, all of Norman shows. And I wrote her a, a letter. I wrote her a letter. They had her casting address in the magazine. I wrote, hello, my name is Stephen Tobolowsky. I'm from Dallas, Texas. Uh, I have loved Mr. Lear shows for years and anything I could possibly do. And Jane Murray called me. She called me. She's one of the few people on earth that called me like a couple days later. She said, this is Jane Murray. Uh, would you like to be on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? And I go, yes, ma'am. She says, well, you'll be an extra. You'll come in. Uh, you'll work on Thursday. I go, thank you so much. So I was able to tell Norman that my first job was on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And the first TV show I ever saw was One Day at a Time because uh, Kay Callen, a girl from Oak Cliff, Texas, where I was born and went to school, 
made it. And she made it and was a recurring character on the original One Day at a Time with Bonnie Franklin. And so she invited me when I came out and I met Norman then. And I said, you know, the first show I did was with Jane Murray. The first show I ever saw was One Day at a Time. And it's such a privilege to meet you. You know, you've made my life so much better and I appreciate it. And then I got the part. And one of the reasons I got the part was I'm auditioning at Sony. Norman certainly said yes, but I didn't need Sony's approval because I already had it. So there is the practicality. And another thing, which I will give this advice to all the young people out there that are listening in Maine, one of the most important things you could do in show business to work, be on time. Be on time. I have seen so many young performers on their first job get fired, fired on the spot because they were 10 minutes late. It's, it's like, don't be late and you already uh, have your foot in the door. I, I had a director uh, tell a group of us years ago uh, doing a regional theater show. I look at the three A's. He said, ability, affability, and availability. And I assume you all have ability, but I'm looking for the other two. Can you show up on time? Can you play well with others? Then I'll want to work with you. Right. If, if you're one of the people that shows up late, if you're one of the people that causes problems on the set, is, is a difficult, it just, a production has already stripped itself down, especially with COVID, to handle all the difficulties of a day without you being one of the <laughs> difficulties of the day. You, you, you know, they require you to be ready to work, like Wendy and I. Uh, I, I told this story, I think last time I was on your show, how we were doing one comedy scene at the end of the day, Wendy and I, and then someone comes on, there's been a COVID break on set, you know, everybody leave, you know, we'll tell you what's going on. And so we're scared to death. We go out of the studio, we're waiting at sundown. We've been working 13 hours and they said, okay, someone was on the set. Uh, we've done contact tracing, you, you, and you, you're safe. We'll, we'll write you. We'll, we'll tell you what's going to happen in the morning, what we're doing in the morning. And then I get an email that night saying, you and Wendy are safe. You and Wendy were not near anyone who had COVID. We will finish your scene in the morning. And so we did half of a comic scene after 13 hours of work all day, a huge COVID scare, afraid to go to sleep, not knowing what our status is going to be. And then we have a 6 a.m. call in the morning to finish the comedy scene. And you have, it is so difficult to do that. You can't practice that in college. You can't practice that in acting school. But what you can do is always be ready. And uh, so when they call you, you're ready to work. Good advice for anything in life. Mm. <laughs> Stephen, uh, it's uh, wonderful to catch up with you, as always. Look forward to hearing more about the uh, Romeo and Juliet Senior Citizens Project as well. Uh, it's a killer. It It is just a killer. I, I can't wait. Well, we wish you much success with that. Uh, thanks, as always, for making time for us. Say hi to Anne, and we'll visit with you again before too long. You got it. Thank you so much, Rich. That's Tobo. Stephen Tobolowski with us here on Downtown, the podcast. We'll pause for a moment for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, legendary pitcher and baseball broadcaster Jim Cott next 
on downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest pitched 25 years in the major leagues. Rolled up 283 wins, won more gold gloves than anybody in the history of the game, and was nicknamed Kitty. Although his last name is not pronounced Cat, as you know, but Cot. We're talking about the great Jim Cot, who's had a long career as a broadcaster as well. He's got a new book out called Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Here's Jim Cot on Downtown. Jim, thank you for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. And congratulations on a long overdue induction to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, I really appreciate that. It's uh, it's a humbling honor. Quite honestly, I, I didn't think it would come, but uh, certainly grateful that it did. And it's uh, it's been an exciting five months so far, and uh, seems like it just keeps getting better. Well, I, I've been a fan of uh, your work on the air, and of course, as a player, I've got a pretty healthy collection of some classic uh, Jim Cott baseball cards. And one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is the fact that even once you became a player, you never stopped being a fan of the game. No, I feel that this is my 63rd year in major league baseball. And I was so fortunate. My dad took me to my first uh, games, June 26, 1946. That's where I like to say I fell in love with baseball saw a doubleheader with the Red Sox and Tigers, saw Ted Williams, Bobby Doerr, Hank Greenberg, Hal Neuhauser, all Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers. And my dad went to the Hall of Fame in 1947 to uh, see the induction of his favorite player, Lefty Grove. And uh, he used to quiz me, uh, and I knew the answer to this question eventually before he even got the question out. And it was Ty Cobb, Walter Johnson, Christy Mathewson, Babe Ruth, and Hannes Wagner. And the question was, who are the first five inductees into the Hall of Fame? So I knew that before I was 10. And that's uh, that's a little background on why I have always been a fan of the game. I love the story in the book about your favorite player as a kid, Bobby Shantz, and uh, how you not only got to know him, but uh, became good friends with him. You know, Bobby Shantz was 5'6", uh, 135 pounds. He won the American League MVP in 1952. You can Google his stats. You won't believe the year he had pitching, but it was a radio game then. And when I would hear the game uh, described over the radio and he was pitching against uh, the White Sox, which is a station I was able to listen to in southwestern Michigan, uh, they would always say, here's Bobby Shantz, best fielding pitcher in baseball, lands on the balls at his feet. He's ready to go left or right, always ready for a ball hit back at him. And so as a young kid, I mimicked uh, Bobby's motion and, my early years as a professional, the pitching coaches, uh, when we went through pitching drills, pitching fielding drills, used to say, kid, you look just like Bobby Shantz. And then uh, fast forward three years ago, I, I usually present the, uh, the Gold Glove Awards to the current winners, 
And Rawlings asked me if I'd ever heard of Bobby Shantz. And I said, heard of him. He's my boyhood idol. So they said, well, we're going to bring him in and have you present him with a uh, legacy award. So at age 80, three years ago, I gave an award to Bobby, who three years ago was 93. Uh, I just got heard from him the other day through his friend Steve, who handles uh, most things for Bobby. And uh, he was hoping to come to my induction, but he's just not... Uh, getting around well enough to do it. But, uh, boy, it was some thrill for me to be able to to meet him and, and get to be friends with him. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful story. And, obviously, you took great pride in your fielding, more gold gloves than anybody else. What was the key to that? Well, I think as a kid, uh, you know, the game wasn't as specialized. It's even specialized now going down to the Little League era. Uh, you know, Little Leagues. But uh, I was pre-Little League. We just played sandlot ball. And I think we always took pride on being a baseball player. And in my case, just happening to be a pitcher, happened to be a pitcher. So we learned to run the bases, slide, handle the bat, bunt, all of those things. And uh, because Bobby was my inspiration, I just uh, found out that, you know, being, uh, hey, as long as you're out there, it doesn't take a lot of skill to be a good fielding pitcher. It just takes anticipation and practice and you can certainly help yourself and save yourself a lot of outs by being able to field your position. Well, and you're in pretty exclusive company, too, as a guy who also managed to hit 16 home runs and drove in over 100 in your career. Well, I think that goes back to what I just mentioned. You know, I wanted to be a baseball player that just happened to be a pitcher. I mean, I'm I'm just so impressed by what uh, Otani can do out on the West Coast. I mean, that would be a that'd be a dream of mine to pitch every four days and then be the DH the other three or maybe play first base one day. Uh, so, you know, I always, uh, I had the athletic ability to do it, but I always uh, was able to work on my hit, uh, hitting. And of course today I can understand why they want the DH because the pitchers today, they didn't even bat in little league a lot. They always had a DH in, in little league. Right. So uh, I really can't expect them to, to go up there and hit. And that's why they needed a DH. Uh, in, in my era, I was I was kind of disappointed to to see it come in in 1973 because I enjoyed the hitting part of it. We're talking with Jim Cott here on Downtown. I want to talk about your early career. You came up with the old Washington Senators, then made the transition uh, when they moved to Minnesota as part of the expansion. Is it safe to say that uh, owner Calvin Griffith had a very old-school approach to negotiations? Yeah, <laughs> He certainly did. Well, uh, yeah, we were the Washington Senators until uh, the fall of 1960. I was in the Instructional League, which is a developmental league for young players. And we came to the park one day down in St. Pete, Florida, and they said, well, you're now the Minnesota Twins. So we were actually, we were pretty excited about it because we knew the, uh, the positive move it was for the Milwaukee Braves when they moved from Boston. But yeah, playing for Calvin, you know, those were the days when owners made their living uh, owning a baseball team. And nowadays, of course, it's conglomerates and wealthy hedge fund operators. So owning a baseball club is just one of many things they do. It's a hobby for many of them. So, But in Calvin's case, he employed 19 members of his family. Uh, so it was his livelihood. And uh, before free agency, we had no uh, leverage, no bargaining power. So it... Uh, it took a lot of stubbornness and arguing to get a, an extra few dollars out of Calvin. 
1965, your Twins team put it all together. A great year from Azoila Versailles, the MVP that year. Uh, Tony Oliva, Harmon Killebrew. What a what a wonderful team it was. And then you get to the World Series, three starts, all of them up against Sandy Koufax. Yeah, that was a thrill, and yet it was kind of a helpless feeling. Uh, you know, in those days, the only game on television was Saturday afternoon baseball game of the week uh, with Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese. And uh, we were playing on Saturday like every other team was, so I really never saw Sandy pitch in person. Never met him in person until uh, we posed for photographs before the games we started. So I'm out in the bullpen warming up, and he's about 20 feet away. And I thought, wow, I- I've never seen anything like that. I should say I've never heard anything like that with his <laughs> with his fastball. And we started the, the game, and uh, we each went through the batting order the, pretty easily the first time. I mean, they, they didn't have as powerful a hitting team uh, as we did, which – uh, is why I respect Sandy even more because he had to win so many close games. But uh, I mentioned to my pitching coach, Johnny Sane, after the third inning, I said, John, if I give up a run, this game's over. I don't think anybody could score off this guy. And <laughs> of course, we, we scored two runs, one unearned, and we ended up winning that game 5-1, and I was right. We only scored one earned run off him in, uh, in six innings that game and the other two complete game shutouts. Two years later, one of the great pennant races in Major League history as a, as a young Red Sox fan back then. I remember it so well with the Twins, the Red Sox, the White Sox, and the Tigers all going right down to the final weekend. You started in that next-to-last game against Boston. You just needed a win, and, and the Twins would clinch, and then you got hurt. And I think a lot of Red Sox fans would say, if Jim Cott doesn't get hurt on that Saturday game, it might have been a very different outcome to that season. Well, it's always been kind to hear that from Red Sox fans and from people like yourself. I know Yaz and Hawk Harrelson mentioned too many, many times that they thought it might be the case. It was, it was really the best month of pitching I ever had. I actually had pitched uh, the equivalent of seven complete games in that month. One was a 10-inning game. One was, eight, I was pitched eight innings. But I think that and pitching 300 innings, the year before, we, we didn't monitor those things in, but I probably was getting near the end of uh, putting that kind of stress on my arm. And uh, so I injured, I uh, tore that tendon that's now popular for Tommy John surgery, and I had to come out of that game. But, um, you know, yes, uh, looking at the Red Sox and the way they turn things around, I don't think any player that I've been around baseball has ever had a September like Carl Yastrzemski did in 1967. And he, you know, he hit the big three-run homer in, in that game that I started. And uh, it just seemed like every time he came up uh, with men on, he's going to knock in a run. And, of course, maybe what gets overlooked is the way, the how well he played the wall in left field uh, also. So, yeah, I, I take a little satisfaction amongst my Red Sox friends <laughs> that I live near in Vermont as saying, well, I kind of helped. Uh, produce Red Sox Nation. Well, and, and for anybody who says pitchers shouldn't hit, I vividly remember Jim Lomborg's bunt single in that last game of the season that started the rally. Oh, no question. And, uh, you know, Lonnie and I are, are still friends. I was there to present him with a, an award at the Tradition a few years ago up there in Boston, but we became teammates and lockered next to one another in uh, in Philadelphia in the uh, in 76, 77, right during that era. But, 
Yeah, the year he had as well, and, and you're right, that little bump single that kind of started the uh, the rally and enabled them to, to come back and beat us in that last game. And then, you know, once they beat us, uh, I had a friend on that team named Lee Stang. He was a former teammate. And so I went over to the Red Sox clubhouse to congratulate him and to see Yaz. I played against Yaz, of course, for several years. And they were still listening to the radio for the Detroit game because they had to wait to see if the Tigers won. Right. The Tigers would be coming in for a, for a one-game playoff. So they had to wait. And uh, Dick McAuliffe, who was a New Englander, a Connecticut native, uh, hit into a line drive to end a double play to end that second game. And then the Red Sox <laughs> would start celebrating. So uh, even though we didn't win it, uh, you know, it was just a fabulous experience during that month of September when every game we played seemed like it was the last game of the World Series. Jim, you wrote in your book that your favorite managers in your long career were, were Chuck Tanner and Whitey Herzog, essentially because they, they respected you as players and just left you alone to do your thing. Well, I think where, where Chuck came into the equation is uh, when, I, when I was picked up by uh, the White Sox off the waiver list, uh, I finished okay in 73, but in 74, I, I just, uh, I couldn't get anybody out. I lost five games in a row. Harry Carey's on the air and he's calling for him <laughs> to get rid of me and bring a couple of young starters in. And so, uh, we came off a road trip getting my luggage at O'Hare airport, in Chicago. And Chuck said, uh, I come in a little early tomorrow. I want to talk to you. And I thought, well, I can, I can see what that's going to be about. He's got a couple of young starters, Skip Pitlock and, Carl Moran down in the bullpen, and he's probably going to tell me, well, you had a nice 15 career, and maybe it's time to look for something else to do. But I walked into Chuck's office, and he slapped me on the back, and Chuck is the most positive baseball, actually most positive person I've ever been around. And he said, look, you've been averaging 15 wins a year in this league for 15 years. I think you can still do it. So you're going to start a week from Monday. You go down to the bullpen with Johnny Sane, see if you guys can figure something out. Uh, so Johnny worked with me on kind of speeding up my motion, and so I get the start. Well, my record when I had that meeting with Chuck was four and six, and I ended the season twenty-one and thirteen. And without Chuck Tanner's support and Johnny's uh, innovative coaching, uh, my career may have ended by that. So Chuck was important to me uh, because the way he supported me and, and his faith in his veteran players. I mentioned Whitey Herzog as. No manager I played for was a better game manager in terms of matching up the bullpen, uh, you know, getting the best of the other manager. And uh, when that game started, Whitey was like in his own little cocoon. I mean, you know, he just, he was so far ahead of things. One, one day, I usually, I was a seventh inning lefty, lefty reliever then, seventh and eighth. And once in a while, I got to pitch the ninth. But he, one day he said to me, go down to the bullpen a little early today because our starting pitcher, uh, had not had a lot of success against the team we were playing. He said, I may have to make a move early. And sure enough, I came into that game in the in the sixth inning. So there's those are the ways that Ma uh, Whitey was able to manage the game more so than, than any other manager I played for. Now, when you became a pitching coach for Pete Rose in Cincinnati, you certainly uh, followed what you had learned from Johnny Sane, and it was a different approach to pitching. You, you eschewed the pitch count. You looked at things like innings and situations, and, and you love that four-man rotation. That's a good point, Rick. You've, you've done your homework. You know, when Pete called me, because when we played against one another, 
Pete had a way of when he made a, a ground out, he liked to run over the mound and intimidate the pitcher <laughs> and cause him to move. And I'd see him out of the corner of my eye, and I would move in his way. And he would run around me, and he'd turn around and kind of look at me with a little grin on his face. And so one day their batting practice pitcher came over to me, and he said, uh, Pete told me to tell you if he gets a managing job, I want you to be his pitching coach. So sure enough, in 1984, he got the playing manager job for the Reds and called me. And before I took the job, I said, now, Pete, I've got a lot of different ideas on pitching. I said, I had two great pitching coaches that helped me, Eddie Lopat and Johnny Singh. He said, look, I'm thinking about pitching. I know Eddie. You come in and you do whatever you want with the pitching. So I immediately you know, told the guys I'd like to go to a four-man rotation, which we did. Tommy Browning won uh, 20 games that year, first 20-game winner for a rookie in 31 years, I believe, back to 1954 when Bob Grimm won 20 for the Yankees. Uh, and then I was so glad to see today in an interview that Matt Scherzer did with Bill Lebson on the MLB.com page. So they said, they asked Max, you know, what's the most important thing to you in pitching? And he said, first pitch strikes. Mm. Well, when I took over as pitching coach, I showed the guys, I said, look, if you get strike one on every hitter, you're going to get 80% of them out. So we didn't have pitch counts. We didn't care. Uh, you know, the only thing we wanted is uh, get ahead in the count. Strike one's very important. If you get strike one, get strike two. And, and that really paid off for us. We had a nice pitching staff that year. So I, I enjoyed uh, taking what I had learned from those two guys and letting Pete uh, allow me to use it, which, of course, today, uh, you'd have no chance to try to use that kind of logic. We're talking with Jim Cott here on Downtown. Well, Jim, you've had a terrific career as well as a broadcaster, and I was fascinated to learn in the book the advice that you got from John Madden about having notes. Well, yeah, that's that's a good point. You know, I, I did some games early on. The way I got into broadcasting way back when uh, in the 60s, uh, you know, we had to work in the offseason as players. We didn't have huge contracts. And so uh, one winter I did high school sports. I did uh, high school basketball, football, and and I had taken speech classes. And so I always felt comfortable talking sports with people or talking in front of people. So now I get a chance during the 81 player strike to uh, do some games uh, with uh, Ralph Kiner. And then it kind of forwards into, you know, future jobs, and I, I worked some uh, some network games on NBC with Dick Enberg. And uh, Dick was so helpful to me. You know, he was the prototype play-by-play man, very economical with words, but he taught me a lot of the mechanics of broadcasting. And then as I got more experience into it, uh, and I, I had to do a game one night at Minnesota. I was doing CBS games on Saturday afternoons, and the over-the-air station, WCCO, uh, wanted me to do everything I could to not miss one of their games. So I caught a flight at O'Hare, flew into Minneapolis, got to the Metrodome as they were finishing the national anthem. So all I had was my lineup card. And so all I really had to do, I knew the players, was just watch the game. So I called my broadcast partner, Dick Stockton, the next day. He was my CBS partner. I said, Dick, I did a game last night. And I felt more comfortable doing that game. Like, I was on top of everything. I had no notes. I'm just watching the game. <laughs> he said, well, that's what John Madden does. I said, really? 
I'd like to talk to him. So Dick, having worked football with John, hooked me up, and John and I had several conversations that helped me about, you know, you do your homework uh, ahead of time. Of course, he had a whole week because he's only doing one game a week. But you do your homework, uh, you know, you learn the players. You don't want to make any mistakes about, uh, you know, in his case, he said, I didn't want to make a mistake that, this wide receiver, a tough guy with his teammates, knew he might be a little soft or something. So I just learned a lot from John, and I, I did. I will keep an occasional you know, note that I think is important, but I found, as he said, if you have a lot of notes, you're going to try to figure out a way to force them in. And a lot of times they don't make sense. Right. And if you don't remember, uh, if you don't write anything and there's things that you wish you would have said but you don't remember, they probably weren't that important anyway. So that was good advice for me. Now you've worked with uh, some of the biggest names in the business, but uh, it feels for, from your book like the best, the dream booth for you was that chance you had for several years on the Yes Network working with uh, Kenny Singleton, having having two former players who could both do play-by-play. Yeah, you're exactly right. I, I had worked a couple of years with a really fine announcer, Dave Cohen, and uh, Dave wasn't a baseball guy. He was just a, a great voice and loved the game. And then um, MSG decided to go a different direction, so they said to me, uh, who, who do you think you'd like to work with? And I said, well, I'd like to work with a – the ideal would be another player who's had play-by-play experience because I said it doesn't take a lot of skill to do play-by-play on TV. It's the radio guys, like, you know, Joe Castiglione. That's that's a skillful job to be able to describe that to people that can't see what's going on. And on TV, they can. Well, they tried out several uh, announcers that they brought in with me that were all good, and then they said, well, who's the guy you, you think? And I said, you know, I I know Kenny a little bit, uh, but just the two innings we, we kind of uh, uh, did today as a, as an audition, I said, I, I really like the way we got on. So they signed Kenny and we had, uh, I still get comments. I was at a, a memorabilia show uh, last weekend up in uh, New York. And they said, man, we, we just enjoyed those days with Kenny and myself because we're just two former players talking baseball. You know, as far as a, a play-by-play guy that that really is interested in the game and knows the game, I, I you know, I've enjoyed my time now in the last almost 13 years, almost 14 years doing MLB games with Bob Costas mm. because, you know, we become friends as well as broadcast partners, and we carry that friendship into the booth. Uh, you were one of the, the few who spoke up early on and said that uh, this stat cast thing was not going to be good for the game of baseball, and my goodness, were you right on that? Well, you know, we had a, we had a seminar years ago. Everybody was excited. They said, we're going to have this new thing called stat cast and they're going to measure exit velocity and launch angle and i attended the seminar and everybody was so excited about it and what a great new feature is going to be for the game and as i flew home that day i said you know it's going to be a revenue producer but in my opinion it's not good for the game and we've seen what it's done to affect hitters in terms of strikeouts and uh you know, the, the, the game, the way it was meant to be played with the ball in play and hit and run and squeeze plays and triples, that's all out the window. And all everybody wants to talk about now is exit velocity and, and launch angle. And, you know, I know three guys that were outstanding hitters and batting champions whose exit velocity wouldn't be in the top 100, and that's Tony Gwynn, Rod Carew, and Wade Boggs. 
you know, and they did pretty well by just kind of poking the ball around. So I, I don't like the effect that it's had on the game, but yet I understand it. You know, everything in my early era as a broadcaster, it was an analyst game. The the uh, executive producers would say, follow the analyst. What's he got to say? What are they looking for? Who's in the bullpen? What's the situation? Well, now you really don't have as much chance to analyze the game because you have sales elements and promotional elements that are much more important from a business standpoint. So as much as I love the game and I still like to watch the ability of the, of the, of the players, uh, you know, the game as a whole is certainly not as appealing. And uh, even my grandsons don't, don't find it as appealing as they did when they were, you know, little leaguers. If anybody asked you from the commissioner's office, what's the first thing you would do to make the game more appealing to young fans? Well, I, I've said this. I, it'll never happen as fantasy, but I think, uh, you know, after two and a half hours, a lot of people are ready to go home. So seven innings is, is the, the nine or nine is the new seven, whatever you want to put it. But seven innings, if you can play seven innings in two and a half hours, and if you could soften or deaden the ball. Now, I understand there was an article came out today. I just heard, I believe it was on Yahoo Sports, that the pitchers feel they're using two different kinds of baseballs. I There's saw one, that, yeah. Yeah, that has raised themes, the cover's a little more porous, and it doesn't carry as far. You have one that's slicker with lower seams. Of course, that's the one that would jump. So I'd like to see him soften the ball. And I think the time might be coming uh, to play the game the way we used to play inter-squad games in spring training. Three balls, you walk, two strikes, you're out. So everybody's up in arms. Why did Clayton Kershaw come out after six perfect innings? Well, because they're counting pitches. And he had a short spring, and he's coming off maybe an injury from last year. So if you had three balls, you walk, two strikes, you're out, it accomplished two things. They wouldn't have to throw as many pitches in a game like Clayton pitched. And I think, you know, it would motivate the hitters to try to put the ball in play sooner. It would motivate pitchers to put the ball in the strike zone sooner. I mean, the number of 3-2 counts we have uh, is unbelievable. I, I will say the one change that they made in the minor leagues that I understand is doing really well. They have about a 14-second pitch, 14 pitch clock right. with nobody on base. I think they go to 18 with a man on base. I think so, yeah. I understand they've shaved about 20 minutes off a game, and uh, that's what I'd like to see them do in the big leagues. I think the uh, it, it'll never happen for revenue standpoint unless they can say, well, if we can go to our advertisers and get more money because we're only going to play seven innings and the players will take a 20% pay cut. So that's, that's, that's fantasy right there. But <laughs> to me, that would make it a more appealing game. Jim Cott's new book is called Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. Jim, it's been wonderful talking baseball with you. Congratulations again on the Hall of Fame induction, and thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. So much fun talking uh, baseball with Jim Cott's. His book is called Good as Gold. Our thanks to Jim. Thank you to Stephen Tobolowski and to you for being with us this week. Be sure and join us next time right here on Downtown.